stand for the New Testament reading, which is from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at now you have received or revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me briefly. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. It has been said on more than one, of a, on more than one occasion that almost all of life could be reduced to simply showing up. Just show up. We've experienced this truth and this reality in our own lives, both as givers and receivers. I can't help but to think about this reality as a parent and throughout the different years of my life and the way that it relates even to what I want us to see Paul today when my kids, who are now 12 and 10, were younger, um, as in toddlers and such, I used to love to come home because it was not uncommon for them either to A, be waiting on the porch, or B, to have started on the porch and then flung themselves out into the yard to come and greet me barely when I could get out of my car. Of course, celebrating uh, each day like it was a parade uh, when I would come home. And it was so encouraging. It gave me joy, and it gave them joy to be near each other. And then I think as they've gotten older, and particularly in my previous job, which was just recently, I traveled a lot. And it was hard to be gone. And when I was gone, it tended to create a high sense of anxiety in me, uh, in my wife, uh, and in my children as well. But then when we would be reunited, when there was this nearness, it's amazing how that nearness became an anecdote to the anxiety that we would experience when we were apart. And then I also think about in the context of my family, those times, and oftentimes this occurs on trips, and these aren't always glorious moments, but, but in many ways for me, I love the times, and I can think of specific examples. I, I, I tend to often think about a family trip we did a couple years ago in Colorado, where we all stayed in the same room. 
And that feeling at night, uh, before anyone's waking up and before it gets disruptive and assuming everybody's well, uh, you know, there's a lot of contingencies. But I love those nights when we are all in the same room and I'm the last one awake and I just have that sense we're all here, we're all together, I'm content. All those examples are precipitated upon the principle of nearness. When I am near to my little children, there's joy. When I'm apart from them, as they got older, there was anxiety. And then when we're near, as in near all together in that same room at night, there is this sense of contentment. And that's what I want us to see this morning from Philippians chapter, from Philippians chapter 4. Paul outlines for us this indicative principle. He states something that is true. He states this. The Lord is near. That's the big thing I want us to see from Philippians 4 this morning. Paul wants us to see that the Lord is near. And and the nearness that Paul speaks of is twofold for us to understand. Part of that nearness is the experiential nearness of the everywhere presentness of God. God is omnipresent. And whether we perceive His nearness or not, God is near. And he's especially near to those who know him. And he's especially near to those who call out to him. And he's especially near to those who find their refuge in him daily, right now. But then Paul also has something else in his mind, this Greek word and concept called the parousia, which simply means Christ's second coming. And so even then, 2,000 years ago, Paul is telling the church at Philippi, not only is God near to you day by day, But God's nearness in the second coming of Christ is upon us as well. And because of this nearness, because of this reality, because of this indicative statement, Paul calls us to three imperatives that I want us to reflect upon this morning. Because the Lord is near, we are called to rejoice, we are called to not be anxious, and we are called to be content. Because God is near, we are called to rejoice, we are called to not be anxious, and we are called to be content, all, once again, precipitated upon this reality of God's nearness in this world and with His people. Let's first look at what Paul calls this church to, both in Philippi and this church here in Knoxville to, this concept, once again, of rejoicing. Rejoice here, it's pretty obvious. Many of your versions would show it having an exclamation point, which indicates an imperative. And we've said that Paul mentions the word joy 16 times in the book of Philippians, and it's almost always in the imperative. And so Paul says, the Lord is near, and as a result of the Lord being near, rejoice. In fact, Paul cares about this so much in this moment as he's concluding this friendly letter that he says, I will say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. So not only are we called to rejoice, but Paul wants to repeat saying, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. And then he qualifies, we are to rejoice always. And we've said this in a number of different ways with this concept of joy, but I've broken it down like this. We can tend to err on one of two ends of the spectrum when it comes to joy. Christians are bad at joy, unfortunately, even though it is 
intended to be, scripturally, a telltale characteristic of a Christian. And the reason that Christians are bad at joy, to put them on two ends of the spectrum, one, joy for many Christians is plastic. It's not real. It's not based in the reality of living in a broken world. And so it's this pie-in-the-sky, unrelatable joy that Christians seemingly have that, among other things, causes non-Christians to lose all respect for Christians because it's a sugar-coated, plastic joy. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we struggle with this concept of joy as in we never are inhabited by it at all. We are so aware of the pre-new heavens, new earth. We are so aware of our own brokenness and the brokenness of others and the brokenness of the world that we forget this thing called the resurrection, which brings hope where there is none. We forget this proclamation called the gospel, which does tell us that we're bad and that we live in a bad world, but it also tells us that we are loved and that we are loved and forgiven and accepted in Christ more than we've ever dared to dream And the more we understand that principle and that proclamation, the more joy that Christians experience. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, the Lord is near, therefore rejoice. Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians says this, Joy is how believers who know Christ and whose futures are guaranteed by Christ respond in the context of present difficulties. Remember, Paul is writing about joy in prison. It's not sugar-coated. It's not plastic for him. Not because they like to suffer, but because their joy is in the Lord. But joy is not a feeling. It is an activity above everything else. Joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. And in this letter, Paul comes most often with this concept as an imperative. Whatever else life in Christ is a life of joy. The Lord is near, therefore we are called to experience joy. And I can't help but to think about a personal example in Paul's own life while he was writing this letter in the Philippian jail as he is chained to guards, Acts 16, which recounts the narrative of Paul being in jail while he's writing Philippians. Acts 16 is the narrative account of that. It says that Paul and Silas were singing hymns and rejoicing while they were chained to guards in prison. Well, I'll tell you what, that's powerful outreach. That's powerful evangelism. It's not pre-programmed, cheesy, disrespectful evangelism. It's real. Christ in us, rubbing off on others. What do you think these Philippian jailers thought about these two men who professed the gospel and claimed Christ? Seemingly, they did not. In fact, we know they do not because we see a conversion, actually, of one of the jailers in Acts 16 in Philippians prior to them or after the fact of Paul and Silas singing hymns and expressing joy. Think about how powerful that is. Among other things, joy in the life of the believer is supposed to be an incredible apologetic tool to an unbelieving world. Once again, not that sugar-coated or plastic, but how in the world 
can people express such hope and joy even in the midst of horrific circumstances like cancer? When a Christian experiences cancer and is able to continue to profess hope in Christ, that's powerful. And we see that even here in Paul. Because the Lord is near, we are called to rejoice. Not only are we called to rejoice, but we are also called to not be anxious. And we're going to camp out here in this section a little bit more than the other two in the sermon this morning. And this is where we're thankful that the Bible is a real book that speaks to real life. This is 2,000 years ago, Paul writing on arguably the most predominant issue, if not the most, the top three most predominant problematic issues in our culture today. Here Paul is addressing this head-on 2,000 years ago as he writes about anxiety. And I want you to know that anxiety is not something that I speak of personally, theoretically. I've got a friend who's a pastor who talks about one time telling a congregation of his um, that, you know, would, or would regularly either insinuate or explicitly talk about his own sinfulness and brokenness, of course, in appropriately vulnerable ways. And he talks about one, a college student in the midst of his congregation or parish who came to believe in Christ. And part of this guy's conversion story, as he's talking to my friend who's a preacher, he said, you know, I've heard my whole life preachers say they were sinful and broken, and you're the only one I've ever believed which is encouraging on one hand, and on the other hand, he's kind of like, <laughs> um, well, I stand before you as a sinful and broken human being, and, and you see that in certain ways peripherally, and the more you get to know me, the more you'll see it up close, and that sinfulness and brokenness is manifested in a bunch of different ways, but even as we get into this, I confess this morning that brokenness in my life oftentimes primarily is channeled through this issue of anxiety. This is not something that is impersonal to me. This is something that is deeply personal to me. I resonate very much with one of my favorite singer-songwriter artists whose name is Jason Isbell. On his most recent album, actually has a song simply entitled Anxiety. And then one of the things I like about the song, in addition to the lyrics, the music itself is not the most pleasant thing to listen to, but I think what he was trying to get at in this particular song is he wants you to feel anxious as he sings this song called Anxiety. And if you listen to it, you'll be like, yeah, it's not really that pleasant. But guess what? Neither is anxiety. He says this, anxiety, how do you always get the best of me? I'm out here living in a fantasy. I can't enjoy anything. Anxiety, why am I never where I'm supposed to be? Even with my lover sleeping close to me, I'm wide awake and I'm in pain. Many of us, all of us to one degree or another, can relate with the pervasiveness of anxiety in our culture at large and then specifically within our own lives. And we all, to some degree, should be grateful that Paul addresses this. And I want us to unpack it a little bit more. I, of course, could give you a myriad of statistics with regard to how pervasive anxiety is in our culture at large. And we all know 
that anxiety is not merely something that is psychological. It's not merely something in our minds. One health professional after another health professional, one medical study after another study, even linking anxiety to things like cancer. Anxiety is pervasive. Anxiety runs deep. Anxiety is destructive. Yet it's something that we, I'm afraid, have just come to accept. And anxiety is a specific example of this, but you've heard me talk about this concept before, and specifically with regard to the resurrection. I would just encourage a word of caution against us in our own life when we look at aspects of brokenness like anxiety, and we determine as if we are Lord, and we say, you know, it just is what it is. When Christ comes again, I won't be an anxious person, but until he comes again, I'm just an anxious person. And I would just lovingly say to all of us, me included, who gives us the right to declare that? Who gives us the right? Who are we to say the resurrection does not have more power over our brokenness than we think it does? I cannot stand up here and claim to you that the power of the resurrection pre-new heavens, new earth, prior to the parousia and Christ's second coming, that you can live day to day without anxiety. I am here to proclaim to you you can live with less anxiety as a result of the nearness of the Lord, as a result of the resurrection, as a result of the promises of the gospel. But have we just accepted it? As a reality, we should be cautious to accept anything, just as a rule of thumb, that Jesus says do not do. That would be like a good place to start. Anxiety has become so pervasive, and it's so common, and we're so quick to just let I'm so anxious roll off our tongues. Once again, me leading the charge, we should be cautious because Jesus says, Do not worry. And then Paul, once again, explicitly says, Do not be anxious. And we tend to think, Yeah, it is what it is. I am what I am. This is just kind of part of it. I'll just simply ask you this Do you want it to be part of you? Do you like it? I know it's an old friend, and I know that we're very comfortable with it. But if we had the choice, like to take a a red pill or the blue pill, and the blue pill was not anxious, and the red pill is keep being anxious, right? Well, it's not that simple, but... We do need to have our acceptance of this brokenness and this reality challenged. And I think that's what Paul's seeking to do here because Paul almost speaks about this in an anecdotal way. And I hesitate to say that because it makes it sound shallow. But Paul not only says, do not be anxious. And have you ever, by the way, been with people? And I mean, I am one of those people, especially when it comes to parenting, unfortunately, where I just, you know, off the cuff say, oh, don't worry about it. And then that's it. Like, that, that, was, that was like my solution. Paul actually says, do not be anxious. And then he actually gives a solution. 
he gives an anecdote to anxiety. And he says, instead of being anxious, this is what I want to unpack in a little more depth, pray. Instead of being anxious, be thankful. Instead of being anxious, embrace the good, like meditate on good and right and true and real things. Now look, I don't have time to get into it in great depth, nor do I believe the pulpit, even though this doesn't look like one, nor do I believe the pulpit is a place to do psychotherapy. I just want you to know, I understand personally, though not holistically, but I understand personally, I understand medically, I understand psychologically that anxiety is nuanced and complex. And there's really no aspect of our being that has not affected our mind, our heart, our soul, our lives, our bodies. I get all that. I don't have time to unpack all that, nor do I think this is the place to do it, nor am I the God to do it. I need you to know that I know that. And then I need you to hear what Paul says. Do not be anxious, but pray. So here's the way I want to say it. Sure. Dealing with varying degrees of anxiety and different people around different parts of the spectrum when it comes to worry, fear, and anxiety. Dealing with anxiety appropriately is more than just praying about it. But I can promise you this, it's not less than just praying about it. And that's my fear that we have complicated anxiety, maybe appropriately, to such an extent that our only ways in which we deal with it, only ways, are medical. Or our only ways of dealing with it are fill-in-the-blank, relational. Our only ways of dealing with it are simply accepting it and being comfortable with not being whole. And that's what I think I want us to be challenged on. Dealing with anxiety is more than simply praying, but it is not less than simply praying. And Paul calls us to this. One writer says this, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger life come flowing in and so on throughout the day. Is that not an unbelievable description? The real problem in life comes when we wake up each day and we feel this rush of wild animals coming at us with fussings and frettings and who we are and what we must do and who we aren't and what we did. And this wise writer says, the first job each day is to be still and to tell them to shut up and to pray. To confess with the psalmist that we are prideful, that we tend to involve our things that are too great and too mighty for us, Psalm 131. And then also, instead of doing that, like the psalmist in Psalm 131, we are called 
to still and quiet our soul. And prayer and meditation, essentially, is the best and the most effective way to do that. But it's not just prayer in general. It's amazing that Paul actually writes that we are to pray. Instead of being anxious, we are to pray. And then he unpacks it in a little more detail. And he says, not only just to pray, but to pray with gratitude. NPR in 2015 did a study around Thanksgiving on gratitude and heart health. Paul Mills, who's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, who studies this, did a particular study on 186 patients who were dealing with various effects of anxiety, fear, stress, and the way that it impacted their heart and strained their heart. And he had them fill out a questionnaire. And guess what kind of questionnaire it was? It was a questionnaire on thankfulness and gratitude. And he was able to scientifically, biologically affirm what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Because he did that study and then he did a follow-up study where he actually had 40 of these, this sample keep a, a Thanksgiving journal for a month and to write in it two to three times a day. And guess what? Their physical, biological hearts became healthier and became more resistant to disease and became more receptive to health. How? Out of gratitude and thankfulness. Did it fix them? And if if you're hearing me say that that fixed them, then you're not hearing me. If you're hearing me say that's a component of wholeness and healing, then you're hearing me and you're hearing Paul. And why in the world would it work like that? Because God made the human body. And God wrote his word. And God is telling us, I know you're anxious because you're a broken person living in a broken world. And while there's a number of different ways to deal with anxiety, many ways that I am allowing healing to take place, even through the medical profession. But don't forget, I've also designed your body to combat anxiety biologically through gratitude and thankfulness and stillness, and soulless, and prayer. This is a beautiful reality. The last thing I'll see with regard to the way that I think Paul wants us to see, and I, I haven't heard this connected a lot in um, sermons or, or studies on this, but I think about verses, or, or the verses 8 and 9. That Paul ends. So Paul's told us not to be anxious, and he says, instead of being anxious, pray, offer your supplication to the Lord, pray with thanksgiving, which is an anecdote to anxiety. And then he moves into verse 8. And what he's putting before us in verse 8 is this concept of meditating upon that which is good. And while it might not be immediately apparent as a combatant to anxiety, I completely think this is. Because you see, anxiety, if you think about it in a negative way, is meditation. And I understand that meditation feels a little out there for some people, maybe a little bit less so these days. And for those of you that are are discerning, you might have some leeriness with regard to Eastern thought and what meditation is there and all. And I would just say that, you know, Eastern mystics did not invent meditation. You see meditation all throughout Scripture. In many ways, the Psalms are 
meditation through and through. And, and so when we think about meditation, we're like, I don't really know about that. I don't really know how to do it. I would just say, yeah, you do. What is worry other than meditation? Your anxiety is meditating. It's just us meditating on things that are not true. In fact, most of our anxiety and fear could be characterized as false prophecy. Fear of that which might happen. Fear of what they might be thinking. Fear of... And I think Paul calls us away from this false prophecy. And he says, look, you get meditation. Anxiety is meditation. It's just meditating on the wrong subject and the wrong object. And I believe that in addition to calling us to pray and to be thankful, Paul says, meditate on that which is... Look at verse 8. And I want to read it at this point. Finally, brothers and sisters. And don't get lost on the word whatever. I'll come back to that in a moment. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Cross-reference, last week's sermon Paul, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, tells us that we are citizens of heaven, living in a colony of heaven, just like the Philippians were living in a colony of Rome in Macedonia, meaning that God created a beautiful world. Augustine said, all that is, is good. God doesn't make junk. God doesn't junk what he made. Go listen to the sermon. But keep with this concept right here. Because we are citizens of heaven, because we live in a world where Christ is engaging culture, Because we live in a world where Christ sits on the throne over all things, not just all Christian things. All that is, is good. Therefore, in all of creation, in all that God has given, you don't have to simply think about Christian things. You can think Christianly about all things, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. Well, that's pretty liberating. That a way that we can combat anxiety is to reflect upon those things that are good, true, noble, and right in our culture, in people, in art, in music. By the way, we can deal with this later on a deeper level. This is a great criteria objectively to identify what is good art. Because beauty is not simply subjective, and that can be a fun conversation to have some other time. But Philippians 4.8 gives us some objective criteria and standard for art and for culture and for music. And it reminds me of Leonard Bernstein talking about Beethoven. Beethoven can combat our anxiety. How? This is how. Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness. 
That's the word. When you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant in that context, then chances are you're listening to Beethoven. Our boy has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish something is right in the world. There is something that checks throughout that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down. He makes that reflection upon listening to Beethoven. You know, for him, that's a thin place. N.T. Wright talks about this Celtic tradition of thin places where the veil between heaven and earth is very thin because things are so good. It's that incredible conversation. It's the beauty of God's creation. It's a great meal with great food and great drink. It's a great sporting match. I don't know what it is for you. But we all have thin places that are pure, true, noble, good, and right. And the application is this. Avail yourself to them. Drink deeply of thin places. Look to restore the fabric of shalom in the world. Don't feel bad about listening to good music. In fact, listen to more good music. Don't feel bad about enjoying food and drink deeply and richly. It actually combats our anxiety. It allows us to meditate and experience on things that are pure, True, noble, and right. And we need that. Because our propensity is to not meditate upon those things. And remember, Paul gives us this great liberty. More so, God gives us this great liberty. Whatever. Whatever is pure. Whatever is noble. How liberating to be able to live in the light of the gospel in this area, where we can seek to go about experiencing thin places. Here's the deal. Thin places combat anxiety. The Lord is near, so Paul calls us to rejoice. He calls us to not be anxious. And very briefly, he calls us to be content. You see this in verses 10 through 13, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that you at length have renewed your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Potentially, the most often misunderstood and poorly interpreted verse in the whole scripture. I don't have time to unpack it in deep, deep ways. I would turn your attention to the beginning of your bulletin where New Testament scholar D.A. Carson enlightens us on what Philippians 4.13 does not mean. It's fine that you wrote it on your baseball glove in high school. It's fine. But... In Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The everything 
does not include jumping over the moon or other impossible things, nor does it mean everything which God wants us to do. The latter is an unwarranted associative jump because it does not take into the context of the passage, namely, living with or without many physical necessities. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, here's what I can tell you about contentment. Number one, it's learned. Number two, I'm learning it. And here's how I'm learning it in the midst of suffering. I'm learning that I can do all things while I suffer, whether I'm in plenty or in want, because of Christ who strengthens me. And what a great place not only to end this sermon, but to end this letter. Because you see, what we've been called to this morning is a pretty heavy dose of imperatives. We did start with an indicative, which is the Lord is near. And because of the Lord being near, we're called to joy. And because of the Lord being near, we're called to not be anxious. And because of the Lord being near, we are called to be content. But if you're astute and you're listening, which I hope that you are both, you would ask this question, how? And it'd be very easy to end on a high moralistic note. And I could say something to the effect of, go try harder to be joyous and to not be anxious, which will just make you more anxious. And to be content. Try harder. And that would be self-sufficiency. And that's distinctly not what Paul's talking about with regard to contentment. Paul ends on this beautiful gospel note And he says, look, yeah, the Lord is near. And as a result of the Lord's nearness, be joyful. Don't be anxious and be content. But here's how you're going to do it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you that you specifically speak to us where we are in things like anxiety And in things like a lack of contentment and joy, we pray that you would continue slowly but surely to work on us, to infuse your power and grace into us. And the result, Father, we pray for is transformation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.